The uh, passage for today is Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be con- become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Great to see you all once again, and, uh, and to be with you at the beginning of what, I guess it's, fall hasn't officially started, but it's a fall semester has started, and it feels like fall, and it feels like a great time to get together and worship and hear from God. Um, uh, Tom mentioned it before, but we've got a baptism service going on a little later today, 6 o'clock, right up the street at First Baptist Church. Um, I want to invite all of you to come out and celebrate with our brothers and our sisters who are getting baptized. Um, there's six people actually getting baptized today. Um, one of them you just met a second ago, Matt Kim, who's... You in here, Matt? Are you with the kids now? Maybe he's back there with the kids. But Oh, no, he's right there. Sorry, I didn't see you there. Matt is going gonna, is gonna to be baptized today. Uh, uh, Derek LeBoy is going to be baptized today. Derek, are you in here? Is he around here? Derek's back there. Derek's going to be baptized. Um, his sister, Issa, is also going to be baptized. Issa, where are you at? Are you in here? Yeah, Issa's going to be baptized as well. She's sitting right there. Also, um, Chris Park. Is Chris in here? Chris is going to be baptized. Oh, don't stick your finger up, man. Stick the arm up so we can all see you. He's the tall, handsome young man back there. And his sister Ellie is going to be baptized as well. Ellie's on this side. That's right. And then Dan Lisa is going to be baptized. Who's sitting right here. Dan, did I say Lisa? I meant sin. You know what, man? Oh, my goodness. That might be the first time I made that mistake, but I picked the bad time to do it. So we, though many of you know, we have a, a youth uh, ministry director you just met a moment ago whose name is Dan Lisa, but we also have this brother here named Dan Sin, whose fiance's name happens to be Lisa. So it leads to, <laughs> it leads to innumerable confusions. In any case, we want to hear your testimonies, guys. I got the chance, um, us as elders and many of us got the chance to read them earlier in the week. I look forward to hearing you share your stories with the church and then be baptized as a public profession of the fact that you are a disciple of Jesus and you're following him in freedom for the rest of your lives. Please come out and celebrate that with us tonight at 6. But let me invite you to pray with me now before we jump into God's word. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of all of our hearts 
would be pleasing in your sight. For you, our Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. You are our king, and we want to hear from you. We want your spirit to work in us and through us. So please do that for your glory and for our good. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite authors is is an old English bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle. He lived in the 19th century, and he wrote these words that I read many years ago, and they've always stuck with me. He wrote, the child of God has two great marks upon him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Every child of God, said J.C. Ryle, is marked by two things at least. One, he's got an inward peace, but he's also got war going on inside. There's war and peace in the heart of every child of God. The book of Galatians told us some chapters back as we've been walking through it, that by believing in Jesus Christ, you and I can become children of God. We can be adopted as his sons and his daughters. And more recently, as we've gone through Galatians, Galatians has been telling us that when we become children of God, by believing in Jesus, we experience true freedom, real freedom. And then, over the last two weeks, Galatians has been telling us about what that freedom looks like. What kind of freedom do we get when we become adopted children of God? And what we've seen is that freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever you want. True freedom is really to do what you were made for. It's to do what you were designed for. True freedom is the freedom to actually want what is good. Whereas slavery is to want and desire and chase what is destructive and evil and sinful. So the freedom that we get by believing in Jesus is a freedom to now follow God. It's a freedom to love him and to serve others in love as well. The freedom that we get through belief in Jesus is a freedom from condemnation. We're no longer under God's judgment, under his wrath, if we have trusted in Christ. Now we are free to serve God and to serve others. Today... The passage we're going to be looking at, Galatians continues to tell us about what freedom in Christ looks like. We're getting a little more of a description of that freedom. And here's what, here's what Galatians is telling us today. Freedom doesn't mean that there's no struggle. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that there's no struggle. No, freedom means that now you're engaged in a struggle that you can actually win. Freedom means that now you're engaged in a struggle that you actually have the resources given to you by the gospel to win. Galatians 5, 16 through 26 describes that struggle for us. Let's let's jump in and read a little bit of this. Galatians 5, verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see the conflict in those verses? 
Do you see that there's struggle in there? There's war. You've got, you've got the desires of the flesh and you've got the desires of the spirit and they are opposed to each other in conflict, at war. The desires of the flesh, that really just means your selfish, sinful desires. The flesh here, it doesn't mean your body. It doesn't just mean your physical desires. That's not what it means. Your flesh here doesn't mean your body. What it means is your sinful nature. It means who you were in and of yourself before God came and changed everything. Before he rescued you. But the fact is that that sinful nature is still there. It's still there. It, it doesn't rule you the way it once did, but it's still present. I don't need to tell you that. If you're a Christian, you know that those sinful impulses, those selfish desires, those sinful desires, you know they're still there. And they will be there until Jesus returns. Again, you probably don't need me to tell you that. But what's changed is that now you don't just have that selfish, sinful flesh. Now there's more going on in you if you are a child of God. You've got the Spirit now. The Spirit is God himself present, living in you. The desires of the Spirit that Paul talks about here, the desires of the Spirit, what are those? Well, if the desires are the flesh or just your selfish, sinful desires, then what are the desires of the Spirit? That's what the Spirit wants you to do. The desires of the Spirit are God's will for you. It's God's desire for you. The things that He calls you to. The things that He is, is aiming for in you. So you've got your own selfish will, and you've got the will of God, the Spirit, in you as well. And they're both at work. And they're both opposed to each other, Paul says. There is a war going on in you. What's fascinating about this is that being adopted into God's family um, and the freedom that comes with that, it, it, you might not expect this, but it does bring pain and it brings struggle. To say no to your selfish desires hurts, doesn't it? To deal with your sins hurts. To have to seek forgiveness from somebody that you've sinned against again, it hurts. To reconcile with people or forgive others who have hurt you, isn't that difficult? Isn't there a struggle involved in that? It doesn't just feel natural, does it? To forgive again, to confess your sins again, to repent again, to reconcile again, all of it is painful, all of it is struggle. To fight sin is inherently hard. But that's part of what it means to be a child of God. And now the difference is that you're now free to engage in that war with the hope of victory. You will win the war. In fact, God has already won it for you. When I was in school, um, in high school and in, and in college, to be honest, I was, um, I was lazy. Um, and uh, I'll admit something else. When I was in, in high school and in college, my parents probably won't be very happy to hear this, but, um, but I was a cheater. I was a liar and a cheater. I look back on that with great regret, but at the time, it didn't feel all that awful to me. But then something changed. Something changed after I got out of college. The Lord confronted me with my sin and showed me that I needed forgiveness and that I needed 
Not only forgiveness, but that I needed him if I ever had any hope of changing and not being a liar and a cheater anymore. The Lord rescued me from my own lying, cheating ways. By the time I got to grad school, I was already following Jesus at that point. And a drastic transformation had taken place inside me. But the fact is that that change in some ways made life harder for me. Because now, when I was faced with the temptation to cheat and the temptation to lie, in the past it was easy. If I had the opportunity to cheat, I would cheat. I don't just mean in school. I mean like, you know, when it comes to exams and things like that, yes, I was a cheater. When it came to my relationships, I was a cheater. Now, when I was faced with those temptations, a war (laughs) would begin in my heart. I no longer had the easy option of just indulging and giving myself over. Now I had to fight back against it. So what happened is although when I became a Christian, life for me got so much better, my future was so much brighter, it also got harder (laughs) because the struggle was real and is real. It was a new struggle. Certainly life before I became a Christian wasn't easy. It wasn't just like a walk through the park. But the struggle now as a Christian was different. It was a new struggle that I was not used to. And maybe some of you can relate to that in your own experiences. If you are a Christian and you're married, man or woman, wouldn't life be a little easier for you If God were not always calling you to serve your spouse, forgive your spouse, reconcile, confess your sin to them, wouldn't it be easier if you're just living for yourself and you and your spouse just lived together and you did whatever you wanted, you lived as you wanted? Wouldn't that be easier? Your marriage would be a wreck, or more of a wreck, but but it would be a little simpler at least. You would do what you want. Your, Your flesh would kind of rule the day. But as a Christian husband or wife, now that's changed. Now there's war. It's not war between you and your spouse. It's war in your heart. Every time you're tempted towards selfishness, towards anger, towards abusive words, the war kicks in and you have to say no to yourself and you need to lean hard on the Holy Spirit to find the strength to actually be the spouse that God is calling you to. The struggle is real. But praise God for that struggle. Because that struggle is a sign that you are alive in Jesus Christ. If there were no struggle, it's because you were dead and enslaved to your sinful flesh. Praise God for the war. Your life is better as a believer, even though it might be harder in some ways. Your future is bright, even though it's not easy at every step. One of the reasons I think that life can get more difficult in some ways as a Christian, some ways I think life gets a lot easier as a Christian, but I'm focusing on the difficulties right now. One of the ways I think it gets more difficult is because you become more aware of your sin as a believer than you were before. Because now the Spirit of God is in you. One of the things the Spirit does is he convicts of sin, doesn't he? So the Spirit shows you where there is sin in your life, things that in the past you wouldn't have even paid attention to. Now, it's like the lights have gone on, 
and you see, it's like you walk into a very dirty room and it doesn't seem dirty until the lights go on and you're like, whoa, this place is nasty. It's the way your heart is. The lights go on, illumined by the Holy Spirit, and you start to see all the sins that you had overlooked all those years, and life begins to get a little bit harder now, because now you realize that there's a lot of work to do in your own soul. It's not that you're more sinful as a Christian than you were before, it's just that you're more aware of your sin as a Christian than you were before. But again, that's something to praise God for. That's something to praise God for, because here's the good news. In this war between the flesh and the spirit, if you are in Christ, this war is real, but this war is guaranteed. The spirit wins. The spirit wins. First John 3 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Here's how the war ends. Jesus returns, and you look at him, and you will see him as he is, and you will be like him. You see, the spirit is at work within you, warring against the flesh, and the spirit will overcome. He will win. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He's begun a good work in you. He will complete it. The guarantee of victory. The guarantee of victory. So here's what we're going to do as we walk through this passage today and the time that we have left. I want us to see three things in this passage. One is the works of the flesh. Two is the fruit of the Spirit. And three is the way to win. The way to win. All right, so it's the works of the flesh the fruit of the Spirit, and the way to win. So what are these works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul talks about? These selfish desires that manifest themselves through sin in our lives. What does that look like? Look at Galatians 5, verse 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've got what some commentators call a sin list here. It's a list of evils. And these lists show up in different parts of the scriptures. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, we have one. At the beginning of 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, we have one like this. Similar lists. Here Paul calls them the works of the flesh. And I think if we go through this list, we want to do that quickly, but we can just group them into four different categories. I think they group together naturally. The first group is what we might call sexual sin. Very first on the list, look at it. Sexual sin. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality. Those words are, are specific, but they overlap. As we try to get at what Paul was exactly meant by each word, it's hard to do that because he's speaking a language that's been dead for a long time. But as we study those words, we see that there's some overlap between them. It's funny to note, or interesting at least to note, that when you see these sin lists throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, they're, they're often different in some ways, but one thing they all have in common, all of these sin lists tend to mention sexual immorality. It's always there, high on the list. Isn't that interesting? 
Sexual sin is talked about a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, for instance, after it lists um, sins, it then says this in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And listen to what it says after that. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Remember before I said, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit, God himself, lives in you. That's what it means when it says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. Temple means that's where his address is. That's his home. So, Paul continues, because the Holy Spirit lives within you, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Here we're told to flee from sexual immorality. Again, the Bible has lots of warnings like this. The Bible also has some wonderful things to say about sex as well, beautiful things to say about sex and about God's design for how sex should be lived out and experienced according to his design. Read the Songs of Solomon or the Song of Songs, for instance, and you see that God is not afraid to to magnify the beauty of sex. Jesus himself spoke about sex. Let's look at one thing he said about it in Matthew 19. He's being asked a question here about marriage and divorce, but I think that his response has to do not just with marriage and divorce, his response has to do with about sex generally. It says, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I'm just going to pause there and just mention something as an aside. When Jesus says this, have you not read, he's saying, haven't you read the Old Testament? Haven't you read the Bible, what it says there about human sexuality? This means that when Jesus Jesus actually believed what the Old Testament said. To Jesus Christ, the Old Testament is the word of God. He believes it to be authoritative, and what he says is never in conflict with what the, what the Bible says in the Old Testament. He sees it as, as one continuous communication from God. Okay, So Jesus is saying, haven't you read this in the Old Testament? That he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've got, in a very simple kind of um, uh, package here, something of God's design for what sexuality is meant to be lived out like. God says he's made people male and female. And what should sex look like in their lives? This is what it should look like. When a man leaves his family and a woman leaves her family, and the two become one flesh. One flesh is not just like a metaphor for like they really spend a lot of time together and they get to know each other. One flesh means they have intercourse and they become one. There's a a mingling, a, a, a mingling of their bodies and also souls taking place here. It's very physical, but it's also spiritual. Jesus says, this is what my design is. This is what the creator's design is for sex among humans. It's for men and women to experience sex together in the confines, within the context of marriage, where they become one together. There's no other design for sex that's offered us in the scriptures. No other one other than this one. 
When Paul talks about sexual immorality here, the word he uses, it's called, the word in, in Greek is porneo, which sounds maybe, you know, you can see the porn in there, you see it kind of similar to words that we use nowadays. But it's this general term. It's, it means any kind of sexual practices outside of what Jesus said is the right design. Any departure from what Jesus says here in Matthew 19, 4 and 5 is a departure into sexual immorality. You see that? It, it's, it's, it's a very broad category. Anything sexual outside of this. But then he goes on to say impurity. The problem is not just sexual morality. Your flesh also wants impurity. Impurity speaks to not just physical sexual actions, but it speaks to your mind. Impurity and purity have to do with what's going on in your mind and your heart. When God calls us to, to, to fight against impurity, he's calling us to fight against um, sexual sin right here. Think pornography. Think lust. But then he says sensuality as well. What is sensuality? Sensuality just simply doing what feels right, what feels good. You see, this, this is important for us because it means that if, if sensuality is a work of the flesh, then it means that you can at the same time be doing something that feels very right and feels very good and is so gratifying and still at the same time be completely outside of what God's design is for healthy sexual living. You can be doing something that feels so good. There's not even a, you're not even feeling bad about it. It just feels so right. And yet it can still be, still be completely against what Jesus has called you to. We can't trust how we feel. We need to trust what God has told us. What he has told us is that sex is meant to be enjoyed and celebrated and even talked about, even in church, but it's meant to be practiced within a context of a man and a woman in loving covenant of marriage together. One flesh. There's a second group of works of the flesh here. The second group we could call worship sins. So the first ones are sexual sins. These are worship sins. It lists their idolatry and sorcery. It's kind of weird, right? Sorcery. How many of you think that yeah, I've really been struggling with sorcery this week? I've, um, maybe you have. I don't know. But I think, when I hear sorcery, I think like Harry Potter. You know, I don't, I, that's what I think about. Um, not exactly what first century um, Galatians would be thinking when they thought sorcery. Right? Um, in many cultures all over the world, you say witchcraft, you say sorcery, that's very present in their culture. It's not some foreign idea, right? For some of us who were just traveling recently, we saw some of that, or at least um, heard about some of that. But I'm saying these are worship sins because idolatry simply means this. Idolatry means worshiping something that is not God. Right? So whatever you find most value in, whatever you desire most, whatever gives you meaning and purpose and the thing that you love the most in your life, that's your God. And if it's not the God of the Bible, then it's an idol. And God says that kind of worshiping of idols, that's a work of the flesh. That's something that your, your, your own sinful desires naturally tend towards. Sorcery, think about it this way. Think about it this way. Sorcery has to do with looking for power, looking for healing, looking for safety in something that's not from God. So in the first century Roman world, someone would go to a sorcerer 
or practice sorcery in order to get things done in their lives. Maybe they wanted healing. Maybe they wanted revenge on someone. Maybe they wanted to get some control of very difficult circumstances. So you go to the witch, the, the, the sorcerer, the witchcraft practitioner. Maybe for us that's not something we've even thought about doing. But what do you go to to look, what do you look to for power, for control, for safety? Maybe it's not sorcery, but it's still a work of the flesh. That thing that you look to, to to give you the control and the power and the comfort that you so desire and you really should only be finding in God. Then there's this third group of sins here. We can call them relational sins. Look at verse 20. It's hard to differentiate each of these from, from the other, but let's just read through the list. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I'm not going to try and parse out each one of these, but just think about it this way. Think about this. How does God feel about jealousy and anger? How does he feel about rivalry between people within the community like this, for instance? To God, it's right up there with sexual sin. It's in the same list. Anger, jealousy, envy. It's not something completely set off from sexual sin and sorcery. It's all there together. God hates them both. These sins might seem to be a little bit more respectable to us. If one of you found out that I was like practicing sorcery, I think you'd be like, whoa, what, there's a problem here, right? But if you found out that um, I've got an envy problem, it might not seem as terrible to you. Like, oh, envy... Come on, we all struggle with that. Anger, sure. You get a pass for that, Pastor Rob. You're, we all, we're all angry sometimes. No, and God's, from God's perspective, these are equally destructive sins. Not respectable at all. And sadly, they, they exist within the church, don't they? Don't, don't factions exist within local church? Don't unresolved conflicts and offenses, doesn't bitterness exist within the local church? Broken relationships, distance where there once was affection, coldness and silence where there once was friendship. You can see that in your own families, perhaps. You can see it in the local church. You can see it in society at large. Divisions, dissension. Fits of anger, rivalry. One of the things I was thinking about is that at the, at the social level, one of the ways this plays out historically is through racism. Some people might say God doesn't talk a whole lot about racism in the Bible. I think he does speak a great deal about racism in the Bible. I think he does in places like this. What is racism if not rooted in strife and rivalry and division? Pride, anger. There's, a, there's a, uh, another group here, the last group, and I've called them abuse sins, abuse sins. And by abuse, I don't mean like physical abuse. I mean the, the last two things that he mentions here, drunkenness and orgies, they have to do with abusing things that God gives you. 
All right? So when, when, he's, when he lists orgies here, he's not just thinking about them in a, in a sexual way. He's thinking about like parties, drunkenness and parties, right? So when he says uh, drunkenness and orgies, what he's saying is you're taking things that God has given you and you're overusing them, you're abusing them. It could be alcohol. It, in our lives, what could it be? It could be food. It could be your phone. It could be shopping. It could be social media. It could be TV, if anyone even watches TV anymore. I'm not, I don't know. It, it's, it could be anything. It's the overuse and abuse of something that God has given you. It's out of control. And then in verse 21, look at what he says. In the middle of verse 21, he says, and things like these. In other words, this is not a full list of the works of the flesh. This is just a sampling This is what our own sinful nature produces. And he says they're evident, they're obvious, they're everywhere. And yet, even though they're everywhere, and even though everyone struggles with them, that's not meant to make us think, well, then I guess it's not a big deal. If all of us struggle with this stuff, then really, what's the big deal? No, because there's urgency here. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He could not get more urgent and serious than this. He's saying that if these, if these works of the flesh mark your life, if, these, if this describes the way that you're living, don't fool yourself. Know this for sure, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is your M.O., if this is the description of your life, then you need to listen to this warning. These are the marks of a life that is not free. They're the marks of a life without the Spirit living in us. This is the, these are the marks of a life that's not lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is a life that leads to hell. Outside the kingdom of God. Which means hell. And Paul says, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. We don't like blunt statements like this. I tend to recoil from them when I hear them from others sometimes. But, but see, what we see here is that the Apostle Paul, who's writing these words, he loves these Galatians who he's writing to so much that he's willing to confront them and alert them to the danger of these sins. And God loves you enough to speak just as frankly with you, just as bluntly with you. He loves you that much. Are we willing to speak this bluntly with one another? Are we willing to speak this frankly in love to one another? It makes you kind of weird if you talk like this, doesn't it? If you take all these works of the flesh, all these sins listed here, and you really take them seriously, and you really believe that they lead to destruction outside of the kingdom of God, then that makes you kind of weird. But that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be weird because... Christ says that if you take these seriously and you're warring against them, that's actually a sign that you're free. It's actually a sign that the Spirit of God himself lives in you. We need to move ahead. I need to hurry up. The, number two here, this second 
section of this passage shows us the fruit of the Spirit. And it's this beautiful contrast. And we don't have time to go into each one of these, um, these, these specific aspects of the fruit that are mentioned here. But it's this beautiful contrast between the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice, first of all, notice this. Paul first talks about the works of the flesh. But then he doesn't talk about the works of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and here's one of the reasons I think he does that. He wants us to see that the works of the flesh, this is what we work out. This is what we produce. This is what our actions and our desires produce. The works of the flesh are what we do. But the fruit of the Spirit is what God does. And it happens naturally. Or rather, I should say it happens supernaturally. Supernaturally. God himself produces this fruit. We don't work it out ourselves. It happens in a a way organically. Earlier in the book of Galatians, you may remember this, in in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, I think, the Apostle Paul says that, that Christ is being formed in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, Christ is being formed in you. That means that God is transforming you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. His spirit is in you, inwardly transforming you to make you more like Jesus. And as that happens, what do we see? It's this. It's the fruit of the spirit being born, flourishing, growing within us. As you develop these qualities, it's Christ himself, Jesus, being formed in you. Think about it this way. If you go through this list... Joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about that list up alongside what you know about Jesus and what the Bible tells us about him. This is a perfect, detailed description of the character of your Savior. This is who Jesus is. The perfect embodiment of joy. Joy, happiness. I remember Steve Hong was here some months back, and he said, Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived. I believe that's true. We say he's a, he's a man of sorrows, right? He experienced great sadness. How can we say he was the happiest man? Because even in the midst of all that suffering, in the midst of all those awful circumstances, and all the rejection, and all the pain, there was a deep-rooted joy, right? Who, who exemplifies love more than Christ? Who embodies peace, patience, kindness, Faithful, gentleness, think about it. The Lord Jesus, creator and sustainer of the whole universe, and yet would deal with a young child with so much gentleness that that child had never experienced that kind of kindness and gentleness before. Would, would, would speak to a broken, rejected, alienated woman with a kind of love and a gentleness that she had never experienced before. He is the embodiment of this fruit. And notice, it doesn't say fruits of the Spirit, plural. It says fruit, which is kind of weird. All of this, this whole list, it's one fruit. It's one fruit. Think about it. A tree produces one kind of fruit, right? I think so, anyway. I don't know if it's like genetic modification. Can we make trees that produce several kinds of fruit? Is it possible? I don't know. I hope, well, that would be cool, I suppose. But real trees, non-GMO trees, produce one fruit, right? 
But think about one fruit that you really like. It has many characteristics. So let's say you, know, you really like mangoes. Well, how would you describe a mango? It looks a certain color. It has a certain consistency. It has a certain flavor. Um, it's fibrous, but it's also sweet. It's got a thick skin. It's got all these different aspects to it, but it's one fruit. I believe that what's being described here is one fruit with many different aspects. The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus being formed in you. What is Jesus like? He is all these things. He's like one fruit with all these characteristics. Do you value these fruit or these, these virtues? Do you value them in yourself? Do you value them in others? Think about it this way. When you meet someone, what impresses you? What makes you think, I would love to be like that person? Is it because you see fruit of the Spirit in their lives? What impresses you about others? Is it their spiritual gifts or is it spiritual fruit? I have to confess, sometimes I meet people and I think, man, I wish I had the gifts that person had. I wish I had the personality that person had. I wish I had the, 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 the ability to communicate like that person. Or I wish I had the, um, the, 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 the intellect of that person. Have you ever thought like this? The things that impress us about others are often their accomplishments and their gifts. God says, you know, what should really impress you is fruit. What you should really be desiring It's fruit of the Spirit. When you see self-control in someone else's life, in the face of of horrible treatment and hatred and rejection, when you see them controlling themselves, acting with kindness, acting with love, that's meant to blow our heads. That's meant to really, really awe us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're impressed by other things that aren't from the Spirit. They're just natural abilities or maybe they're just things that we've worked at a lot. If you're a single person who hopes to one day be married, um, what, what, what kind of characteristics are you looking for in the person that you will one day marry? Does your list of qualifications look anything like the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Or are you thinking a whole other list? What kind of person do you want to be? Someone who exemplifies, who walks in gentleness and peace and kindness and goodness, or someone who is impressive in some other way. The Holy Spirit is committed to growing this fruit in you if you are a child of God. It will happen slowly, there's no doubt, but it will happen. Some of us, maybe we get really frustrated when we look at, maybe as I'm talking, you're looking at your own life and you're saying, I don't know that I see a whole lot of gentleness. I don't know that I see a whole lot of patience. Kindness, yes, sometimes. That can be really disheartening, frustrating, isn't it? I want to encourage you with this, that if the Spirit indwells you, He will bring forth this fruit, but it happens slowly. I would encourage you to look back. I was, you know, if I look back at a week ago and say, how much have I grown fruit of the Spirit since last week? I'd have to say, zero. (laughs) I don't see any growth from last week to, to now. But I was telling you a story about when I was in college. That was 20 years ago. I've seen some growth since then. I can celebrate that. Not take pride in it, but I can take some joy in it. So maybe you need to look back at where you've come from. You are not the person you desire to be, but by God's grace, you are not the person you once were. Celebrate that. Thank God for it. And trust them that the growth will come, even if it's slow. A couple of years ago, my son 
was uh, looking at these vines that were growing outside of our house when we used to live in Jersey. We had like these vines that would grow outside the house and wind them their way up the, 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 the gutter pipe thing. And my son asked me, he goes, when did those vines get there? This was several years ago, I guess. He said, well, how did the, when, did, when did those vines get there? And I said, well, they grew very slowly. He goes, no, they weren't there. And then all of a sudden I saw them. I said, yeah, but what you didn't see is that the process of growth was very, very slow. It was so slow, incremental, that you didn't even notice it. But it didn't just appear there overnight. And so he and I went home that night, and we looked, at a, um, we looked at a YouTube video of a vine in a pot growing at super high speed, a time-lapse video. And what you see in this time-lapse video is that this little vine that one day is nothing and another day can climb the whole outside of a building It got there through the long, arduous process of slow growth. You watch this thing at time lapse, and it looks like it's dancing. It just starts spinning around and spinning around. It's going around this this wire. It looks like it's dancing, and there's music playing in the background too, right? So it's joyous. It's beautiful. And I believe that from God's perspective, as he sees you growing in grace, as he sees the fruit that's being produced in your life, he's not looking at it from the same narrow perspective that we are. He's able to step back and look at it and rejoice over what he's doing in your life. He's able to rejoice over the change that's taking place, even to you, it's, even though to you it's so slow that it's frustrating. Not even noticeable. The very last part of this passage tells us about the way to win. So we've looked at the We've looked at the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the way to win. The way to win. Look at Galatians 5.25. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then in verse 16 earlier, it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What these two verses are saying is very similar to one another. Remember we said, inside your heart, if you're a follower of Christ, there is a war going on. A war between the desires of the flesh and a war between the, spirit, between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. But here's what these verses tell us. They tell us that this is a very strange kind of war. The way that you fight this war is actually by yielding. It's by submitting. But not submitting to your own selfish desires. You win this war by yielding and submitting to the spirit who is in you. You, you walk in step with him. You, you keep in step with him. You see, in this war, you're not the general who's out there at the front lines making plans and executing them. You're, you're, you're following the lead of the general. You're behind him. You're following the lead of the Holy Spirit himself as he calls you and tells you what to do, how to deal with temptation, how to flee from sin. You yield to him, you listen to him, you submit to him, you follow his orders. And as you do that, you are guaranteed victory. You keep in step with the Spirit. Think about it this way. Think about a, um, a, a whole army of soldiers marching, and they're all in step. There's someone who's calling out what that measure is going to be, calling out that rhythm, and the army just needs to stay in step. One, two, one, two. God is saying, look, the spirit who indwells you is calling you to follow him. He's he's counting out the steps. What you need to do is stay in rhythm with him. What does that mean? How do we do that? 
Well, the Holy Spirit communicates to us, folks. The Holy Spirit communicates to us primarily through this word which we have, where he tells us what his will is for us. He tells us what direction he wants us to head in. He doesn't doesn't always tell us exactly what decision to make in every single circumstance, but he calls us to a new trajectory, as James was saying before. He calls us to, to, to direct our lives in a particular way, to follow the commands of God, to follow the example of Christ. And as he communicates that to us, he's saying, listen, the way to win is by simply listening, obeying, and following. Yield. In moments where the fleshly desires are so strong, but there's a spirit of God in you as well who's encouraging you to fight hard, to reject those sinful desires. The spirit of God who's convicting you. In those moments, you and I choose who we're going to listen to, don't we? We choose to either yield to the desires of the flesh or we're going to yield to the voice of the spirit who's calling us to freedom and to something so much better. Yields to the voice of the Spirit. He speaks to you in His Word. He speaks to you through even the songs that we sang here this morning. He speaks to you, the Spirit does, through brothers and sisters who He sends into your life to speak truth to you. He speaks to you through preachers, even. And He speaks to you directly if you're His child, if you're a child of God, moving you, urging you towards what is good. And your job in this battle is to listen and obey. To hear his prompting and to follow it as he urges you. So many other voices are calling us in different directions and our own flesh is constantly calling us into sin. We need to tune in. We need to listen closely to the voice of the Spirit as he communicates to us again through his word, through others, directly in our hearts. We need to listen we were in Africa just recently, Dan Sin had a, uh, had a pair of noise-canceling headphones with him. I never put a pair of these on, but he lent them to me, and I put them on, and they just felt normal. I could still hear everyone around me, but then once he, f- he clicked that little switch, the room went silent. It was incredible. I don't think I've experienced that kind of silence ever. I've got four kids. I don't, I've never, I don't think I've ever experienced that kind of silence, at least since we've had children. But it was awesome. In a sense, what we need to do is we need to ask the Lord to help us to cancel out the voices that are calling us toward every single other pursuit that is not from God so that we are zeroed in so that we can listen to that one voice, the Spirit himself. So just like when you put on those noise-canceling headphones, you can't hear the noise in the airplane, you can't hear the people screaming outside, all you hear is that music that you decided to play streaming through into your ears. In the same way, we need to isolate ourselves. Uh, We need to to cancel out, in a sense, all those other noises and listen to what the Lord is telling us. When we go to a, a retreat or a summer camp, God does wonderful things sometimes in those contexts, doesn't he? Maybe some of you can relate to that. You experienced it as a young person or maybe even recently experienced this. I think that one of the reasons that this happens that God works so powerfully in these retreats where we go away for a week and we're with a bunch of other people our age. It could be that the Lord is speaking very loudly in those contexts, but I think one of the reasons that powerful things happen there is because we're unplugging, we're leaving our phones behind, and we're listening. We're listening. And, and we're praying, Lord, speak. Show me truth in your word. 
Call me to action. Call me to follow you, and, and I will take a posture of obedience. I want to yield to you. I want to submit to you. And because we're zeroed in on his voice in those contexts, amazing things happen. The trick is, how do we continue listening once we get back home? And all the noise comes back. How do we continue yielding to the Holy Spirit after we come back to normal life in the day-to-day? -day? I want to urge you. I want to encourage you. to listen closely. Open God's word. Read it, not with a sense of familiarity, like I know what God's going to tell me here, I've read it before, no, but with the expectation and an open heart that says, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, I need you to call me into truth. I need you to, to, to draw me into the way everlasting. Do this for me. And as he does that, as he convicts you and as he works, don't ignore. Respond with obedience. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and follow. Follow. The wonderful thing about the presence of the Holy Spirit in you is not just that he calls you into truth, but he has the power to be able to transform you. He's not just a voice in you that's saying, hey, follow me, follow me. He, can, he has the power to cause you to follow to transform you. That's what I believe the Apostle Paul is saying here in verse 18 where he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Listen, all the law can do, all God's law can do is tell you this is how you should live. But it has no power to help you live that way. But the Spirit in you tells you how to live and then gives you the power to live that way. Will we yield? Will we listen? Will we obey? Are you fighting? Are you at war? Are you seeking to keep in step with the Spirit as He calls you to obedience day by day by day? Or are you walking to the beat of your own drummer, doing your own thing? If you are at war, then I want to encourage you. I'm going to read this quote and then I'm going to pray and close. I want to encourage you, if you are at war, to not give up. Because if the Spirit is in you, then like I said before, victory is guaranteed. I opened with this, a quote from J.C. Ryle. I'm going to read another quote to you from him, and then we'll pray. It says here, Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do you feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would? Are we conscious of two principles, two forces within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, well, let us thank God for it, because it's a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. In other words, if you sense that there's war in your heart, war between the flesh and the spirit, then give praise to God, because that's a sign of life. And remember, the spirit wins. He wins. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit who works through your word in us to bring about transformation would you give us the grace we need to simply yield and submit to him as he changes us? To actively engage what he says and not ignore, but respond with obedience, with faith, by your strength. We ask it in your name. Amen.